Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love and mercy to us. We thank you for Christ Jesus, who is our great high priest, uh, who ever pleads for us and who cares for us. Uh, encourage us in our walk with him now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so young folks and those assorted young folk wranglers can leave, and then those who are remaining, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 28 to 39. And so, can someone read that when you've got it? Matthew 10, 28 to 39. So, this is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' instruction to his disciples. He sent out the twelve apostles at the beginning of chapter 10. Uh, He's commissioned them, he sent them out into Israel with this message. And the first thing he tells them is that persecution is going to come. And that's, we looked at last week, uh, verses 16 through 24, I'm sending you out like sheep in the middle of wolves, uh, that, that passage. And then we come in the face of this persecution to the moment of the disciples' decision. And this is what Bonhoeffer really wants to focus us in on, is the decision that is at the heart of discipleship. And this decision takes place specifically in the face of opposition. So, the first thing we're told in this passage is, do not fear, but fear. And we're told three times, do not fear, in those first few verses. Do not have any fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
uh, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And then later in verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So we've got this three times emphasis on do not fear. And then, why is it that we can face opposition fearlessly? Not because we are brave. (laughs) Not because we are mighty men and women of God. That is not why we are able to fulfill Christ's command here. It's because we fear God. And it will come as no surprise that one of my favorite churchmen is John Knox. I named my only son after him. And John Knox, the original one, not the current one, but John Knox, when he was buried, the man who stood at his graveside pointed at his body in the ground and said, there lies a man who feared God so much that he feared no other man. And and that was a central theme for John Knox's ministry. He was a very combative man. He's one of the first victims of cancel culture over in Scotland. Uh, but all of that was driven by a man who feared God so much that he feared nothing else. So Jesus focuses on these two grounds why we are not to fear. And the first is God's love and care. And then the second is God's holiness. The reason that you and I, in the face of opposition, do not fear is because God loves us more than he loves the very sparrows. Now, what is this the immediate application of? Remember, this is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember way back in chapter 6 when Jesus says, Do not be anxious about what you will wear or what you will eat, or uh, where there were three things. Anyway, uh, do you not know that your heavenly Father loves you? The birds of the air, they neither toil nor they uh, spin, yet the, the Father cares for them. How much more does your heavenly Father care for you? Therefore, do not be anxious. And then he takes that exact principle of God's care for the birds and applies it to a person facing martyrdom. He says, when they drag you before kings and emperors, have no fear. And I think that's a a really fascinating point. (laughs) This care and love that connects our daily struggles of food and clothing and shelter and the command not to be anxious and consider the birds of the air, consider the lilies of the field, 
etc. That same love and care that is supposed to keep us from our daily anxieties is also the very thing we are drawn back to in the moment of our greatest crisis. And so it flows throughout the Christian experience. And as you and I live this, as you and I experience this, this is called union with Christ. We are united to Him both in the mundane and in the moments of greatest crisis. In fact, those moments of greatest crisis are simply the flowering of the daily. Take no thought for the things of tomorrow. (laughs) Sufficient for the day or its troubles. And as we are continually failing, but as we also are continually being reminded... And as we're continually being strengthened, as we continually plant our Ebenezers and say, thus far God has brought me, he's cared for me up until today, as we continually remind ourselves that every single day of my life, he has answered the petition, give me this day my daily bread. I have prayed that and he has answered every single solitary day of my life. In those moments of the minutia, I'm united to Christ. And I'm aware of it, and, and, and I'm walking with Him in peace, and it prepares me for those great moments of conflict. And, and it's interesting... No, never mind. I'm not going to get to that yet. And then, the second thing of do not fear, the grounds why we should not fear, is because of God's eternal judgment, God's holiness. Fear rather the one who will send you to hell. And Bonhoeffer says, this, those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. All preachers of the gospel will do well to recollect this saying daily. And I would say all Christians would do well. Those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. That's the context in which Jesus says, have no fear. And and it's interesting, we're going to reference this in the Sunday school this morning. Psalm 73, Asaph is crying out in a moment of spiritual darkness. He says, I've given up on God. He cries out to God. And the reason that he's given up is because he says, I see all this wickedness around me and I don't see any judgment. I don't see the fairness. I see the injustice. I see the corruption. I see the nasty. Why should I follow after God? Why should I walk in his ways? And he says, 
Then I turned to the temple. Then I came to the sanctuary of God. And I saw their end. And beloved, the fact of the matter is, your and my life is nothing more than a firefly in the twilight. We're here for a moment and we're gone. But what we do in this moment, what we do in that twilight, what we do has impact for eternity. It shapes us. It shapes everything around us. But we are creatures of eternity. And I think that's what a lot of people miss. We deny it. We think that death is never going to come. We think we can beat it. We, whatever. We ignore it. We deny it in a million ways. But that's one truth that is true of all of us. I don't know how I'm going to die. And I don't know how you're going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when you're going to die. But unless Jesus Christ comes back, every single one of us in this room is going to die. (laughs) That is a certainty. And when we live our momentary existence in the light of that eternal reality, it's going to shape not only our daily routine, don't be anxious, but it's also going to shape our moments of greatest crisis. And then Bonhoeffer goes on to point out that there is a conflict that is assumed. Uh, Jesus assumes that there's going to be conflict. Or a little spray stuff one. Oh, well. You guys will love this. This will look so professional. This entire passage assumes that there will be a conflict between the disciple and the world. Bonhoeffer says, the gospel is not to take the form of a hole-in-the-corner sectarianism. It must be set forth by public preaching. And that is a real danger. I was commenting to my wife on the drive here, two churches that have both planted right next to each other, two church plants trying to get started right next, literally next door to each other. And I said, you know, we Christians have the most amazing ability to cannibalize. We're the best there are. (laughs) We're the most prolific cannibals that have ever existed. (laughs) Because if you're succeeding right here, I'm going to plant my church right next door so I succeed better. But there's a danger in that stuff that we're not actually living our life before the world. To live your Christianity anonymously is foreign to being a disciple. We're increasingly today living in a day where being a Christian does not bring social benefit. It brings social detriment. And I'll give you an example. For those of you who are my age or close... When you were young, er, <laughs> do you remember that pretty much every church had one or two realtors who were members of it? 
every realtor went to church. Do you remember how Amway got started? Amway got started amongst a bunch of Christians who were coming together. Amway was absolutely central to the formation of D. James Kennedy and the Crystal Cathedral. Or not? No, 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 sorry, not that's another guy. Uh, D. James Kennedy uh, and his big ministry in Florida. Uh, it was it was it was very connected. Uh, there was social credit and specifically networking opportunities to be seen. There was there was a, a greater uh, standing in society. They assumed that you were a moral person. They assumed that you were on track to be a leader in the community. The, the church was the place. Not today. Absolutely not today. <laughs> you plop your Bible down on the desk beside you at work and you're going to have a call with HR. Uh, <laughs> the, the Christianity is no longer a social asset. It's a social detriment. And we are so much so that to say publicly that child mutilation goes against everything, everything right, everything decent, everything that I will die for, child mutilation goes way, way over horrible lines. Say that in public, you'll get fired. And you can ask the Toronto Blue Jays pitcher, <laughs> who said exactly that. <laughs> and then came out and groveled apologizingly and got fired anyway. Uh, so, the conflict is assumed. And the reason there's a conflict, and this is, Jesus takes up in the passage, he says... In verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And Bonhoeffer picks up a beautiful point here. He says, the cross is both God's peace and God's sword. It is the cross that divides family from family, mother from child, parent from sibling, or whatever. Family, family relationships, business relationships, it is the cross. It is the cross that divides. And it's the cross that heals. And that's the conflict that Jesus anticipates is going to be our life. And again, I want to come back to that first point. It grows out of Matthew chapter 6. The same birds that were pointed to in Matthew chapter 6. Don't be anxious for anything. Take no care for tomorrow. Sufficient for the day or its troubles. The same prayer that we're told to pray and God answers every day. Give me this day my daily bread. And every day, I've gotten daily bread. The same prayer that we are to hold on to in the moment of martyrdom is, God loves me much more than the birds. <laughs> that love of God unites it all the way through. 
And at the same time, that message is both the statement of God's peace and the statement of God's sword. So to be so focused on this master that you walk without fear from the daily to the ultimate persecution will cause opposition. But the disciple walks unbothered and unfeeling. And by that, that was a bad choice of words. Unbothered and unbowed. Let, let's, that was a better choice of words. <laughs> I'm not quoting, I'm just I'm reading my stuff here. Uh, the disciple walks unbothered and unbowed. For he knows that this short life is guaranteed by eternity. This leads Christians to martyrdom today. And it is the full flowering of the daily sacrifice of pursuing the mind of Christ and dying to self. It's a sacrifice every day to be intentional. When, when Paul says, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. When he says, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. That's not something for your refrigerator or your wall art. It's a command. It's a command to be intentional about deciding to think on those things that are true and lovely and noble and of good report because my mind is so corrupt it easily goes elsewhere. But if I'm going to be intentional about pursuing the mind of Christ and if I'm going to do it in the daily, it's going to bear glorious fruit in the moments of crisis. And this is the ultimate conflict that Jesus is preparing his disciples for. But again, it's just, it's the cost of discipleship. Now, I do want to draw your attention to one thing that Bonhoeffer says, because for anybody who is curious about neo-orthodoxy and theology, etc., Bonhoeffer makes a real point of saying, and this is a quotation, the decision must be made while we are still on earth. And for Bonhoeffer, that's a hand grenade. Because the key theology, or the key attribute of God in neo-orthodoxy, and this is from Karl Barth, Bonhoeffer's beloved mentor, Bonhoeffer was the student of Karl Barth. And for Karl Barth, the key aspect of God's character is his love. And his love extends so broadly that at the end of the day, all will respond to that love. And C.S. Lewis, who he's always said he's conservative enough that liberals don't like him, and he's neo-orthodox enough that conservatives don't like him. <laughs> but, but I do get a lot of brilliant insights from C.S. Lewis. But if you've ever read his book, Shadowlands, uh, that is this description of possible hypothetic universalism, that, that the love of God continues to draw even after that moment of death, that the love of God still continues to pull towards you. And the, the resistance against that love, etc. But the point that Bonhoeffer is getting at, I think, is intensified by his context. 
Bonhoeffer says, this decision must be made in this life. And he's writing this book right after the Nazi party has just won the national elections. Just after he has published his address to the churches and got silenced on the radio. While he's preparing to go to New York City to escape the horrors that he sees coming. And shortly after, decides that in good conscience he cannot remain safe in New York City when the persecuted in his own country are being persecuted. And so the call of Christ is to go back and face the persecution together with the helpless. That's his context in which he's speaking. And I think it gets to, I I think Bonhoeffer, probably unintentionally, I've not read enough of Bonhoeffer to know if he ever truly did pull back from universalism or hypothetic universalism, I, that's an area that I'm lacking in my knowledge. But I think at least his context caused him to see that there is genuine evil in this world. And good men, righteous men, godly men must stand. And godly women Good men and women must stand for God, for righteousness. And that is going to bring us into conflict. It's going to bring us into conflict, even in just the irritating kind of rubbing people the wrong way sort of, sort of thing. But it is the call, uh, and it's the cost of discipleship. And again, just circle back, and we're called not to fear. Have no fear. Because your father loves you. And you're just a firefly in the twilight. Use this glow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that beautiful word. Have no fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. We thank you for that word because it secures us in every step of our day. Uh, help us to live out what we know to be true. In Christ's name, amen.